Hey guys. Uh, man, we, we're in deep waters as a church right now. We are in a situation we've never been in with Pastor G and all that's going on there. If you weren't here last week and this is your church family, you need to go online and get updated. We've got uh, the teaching there from last week, the announcement, the documents, all that stuff. Uh, but you know, we're in deep waters and it would be a shame for us to squander this moment in our history. There's a couple ways that we could squander it. One is we cannot be faithful to the gospel and the concept of family that we've been called together in in Christ. That is to say that we could deal in an ungospel-like manner uh, with our brother, and instead of rallying around each other at the most difficult time, we could sort of scatter and, and bail out from each other. Those things would be unfaithful. And I got to tell you, I have never been more proud of our church than I was this last week and seeing the ways that you guys have responded. I mean, you guys were responding according to the gospel, uh, according to grace and truth in the most incredible way. And I'm really, really proud of you guys. And again, this is an opportunity for us to rally together as a family. The elders have put G on administrative leave for an undetermined period of time. He agrees with that action. He steps down uh, wholeheartedly, understands that that's appropriate right now. So we're practicing church discipline. And then the elders are seeking the Lord. What, what does it look like? What does restoration look like? What does this process look like? What's good for the church? What's good for Pastor G and his family? I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. Your leadership has never done this before. Therefore, we have no idea what we're doing other than scripture. So we're seeking the Lord and praying and uh, taking it very seriously. That's why we are fasting and praying all day Wednesday. And we invite you guys into that. We need wisdom from God. We need Christ to be near us at this time. We need him to lead us. And I, I really believe, you know, as we've been asking God to take us deeper as a church, that he's not stopped being sovereign. He's not stepped off his throne in all this. In some way, this is his sovereignty to take us deeper as a church, deeper into Jesus, deeper into holiness and righteousness that he's been calling us to walk in, a greater degree of sanctification. So let's be faithful with this great trial. Um, I want to remind you of what I think is sort of our guiding passage given to us from the Lord. We talked about it last week for this situation. It's Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. It says this, verse 1. If any of you is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. That's the first part. Somebody blows it. You who are spiritual, restore such a one, restore in a spirit of gentleness. Second part says this. Looking also to yourselves, lest you too be tempted. That's the second part. And then the second verse says, and bear one another's burdens, thus fulfilling the law of Christ. And then the third verse says this. If anyone thinks he is something, when he's nothing, he's deceiving himself. Now that, that's, that's the guiding passage for our church this, at, the, at this moment, okay? Four parts to that. Number one, If anyone's caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. That's what we're to do with one another, right? We often do other things. We alienate from and we throw stones at and we become angry at and we judge and we do all these things. But the protocol from scripture is restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. That's what we're endeavoring to do. We're gonna need God's grace to do that. The second part is look to yourselves lest you be tempted. It's easy to look at other people's sin when it's on display, but scripture says, well, look to yourself. Where are my inconsistencies, right? Where are my dark areas? Where are the areas where I've opened the door to the enemy? What are the areas I need to repent of? Look to myself, lest I be tempted as well. And then the third part is, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. What does Christ require of a family in a moment like this? Bear one another's burdens. And you guys have been doing such a good job at that. G and his family feel so showered in love. Uh, way too much food at their house. You guys are bringing them food and gifts. And it's like just pouring out grace on them in this incredibly difficult time. So we're going to continue to do that as a church. What does it look like to bear these burdens together? And then the last part. When we get disappointed in our leadership, when we get disappointed in our family members and friends, if anyone thinks he's something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. The protocol is humility, looking to ourselves. Christ, use this, and this is what I think the Lord is doing in our church right now. Use this as a wake-up call for myself, okay? Gee, yeah, he's got to deal with that, but use that as a wake-up call for me to deal with my 
inconsistencies, my unfaithfulness, my dark areas, my areas of danger, and lead me by your kindness into repentance that I can be faithful to you. Does that make sense? So that's what we're going to be doing as a church. Please join us on Wednesday, fasting and praying wherever you are so we can seek God's wisdom in these things. Again, um, as one of your pastors, I've just never been more proud of you guys, the way you guys are handling this. So I commend you for that, and I thank you for that. We're going to get back in the book of 1 John, so let's open up there. 1 John. 1 John. Back in it. Uh, this will be our third week in the first in First John. The first week we looked at verses one through four of chapter one. Last week, in conjunction with the announcement of Pastor G, we looked at chapter one, verse five, through chapter two, verse two. Today we're going to be looking at chapter two, verses three through six. And the title of this message is the evidence of discipleship. The evidence of discipleship. You guys okay? Okay, you guys seem a little distracted. Don't be distracted, okay? It'll distract me and then things go really wrong. (laughs) So let's be engaged together. This is the word of God. Let's read God's word and then we'll pray and get into it. Talking about the evidence of discipleship. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, New American Standard says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, speaking of Jesus if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected or made complete. By this we know that we are in Jesus. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. This is God's word, let's pray. Lord, these words are incredibly challenging for us, but so appropriate at this moment in the life of our church. It's been coming for a long time that you're calling us to a greater degree of obedience as a church and as individual members thereof. And we ask that in your kindness, because you love us and for your own glory, you'd reveal to us our areas of disobedience. And that we pray today through the teaching and preaching of your word, You'd give us revelation into the joy of obedience and the hope of obedience. Lord, our attention is upon you. We don't exactly know what to do as a church in this moment, but our eyes are upon you. So speak to us, lead us, teach us, refine us, grow us, take us deeper into the person and the glory of Christ. Please help me now to teach and preach, Lord. I need your help for this. And give us ears to hear and obey. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So again there in verse three, the apostle John says, by this we know that we have come to know Jesus. If we keep his commandments, John gives us a clear test for discipleship or the evidence of discipleship. This is how we know that we truly know Jesus because we keep his commandments. Uh-oh, this is deep water. This, is a li- this should be a bit disconcerting, this passage. Let me try to explain what's going on here. First of all, the Apostle John, in writing to these churches that were quite distraught and dealing with their own troubles at the time, had to give them the sort of litmus test because there were two competing opinions about what it, mean, what it means to know Jesus, what it was to know Jesus. You'll remember from our study the first week that there were those who were leaving the church because they had begun to form a different opinion about Jesus and in particular his incarnation. This is review. They had been influenced by philosophical Greek thought that had this sort of dualism that said everything having to do with the spirit and the spiritual realm and spiritual life is good. Everything having to do with the flesh and the material realm and matter and physical life is bad. Therefore, since God is good, we don't think that he ever would have became flesh and dwelt among us. So they denied the incarnation of Christ. They weren't denying the deity of Christ. They were denying his humanity. So denying his dual nature, 
You see, Jesus didn't come as a man. They begin to say, and this is the ancient heresy called docetism, that he only appeared to come in the flesh and only appeared to die on the cross. But matter and physicality are evil, spirit is good. So God didn't do that, they were saying. They were denying the incarnation. So John is writing to correct that. That's why he starts out in verses one through four saying, listen, concerning Jesus, I touched him, I handled him, I saw him, I was with him. He came in the flesh. And because he came in the flesh, we can have fellowship with God. And this is the source and the center of true joy. So that's what he says in verses one through four. Then he begins to deal with the implications of this false idea that some people in the church had at the time that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. You can think logically what the implications are. If Christ didn't come in the flesh then he didn't suffer on the cross in the flesh, then there is therefore no atonement for sins. A little bit of a problem. So this was dealt with in two ways by the opponents here. One way was to minimize the effect and the weight and the consequences of sin and say, you know what? Sin's just not that big of a deal. What's important is the spiritual realm, and that's what we're giving attention to. What happens in physicality in this body is actually quite separate from it. Therefore, they were saying, we can live however we want in the body, and it has no real effect on our spirituality. That sounds a little bit fishy. So John is arguing, saying, no, what we actually do in this body has great consequence, and it really matters to God, and God has redeemed us, body and spirit, and our bodies belong to the Lord, and we're living life with a purpose, and what we do in this body matters to God. So then the second way that they might deal with that idea that there was no incarnation, therefore there was no cross, therefore there was no atonement, if they couldn't minimize the effects of sin and the reality of it, some of them were just saying, well, we actually don't have any sin. Sin is not a problem because we don't have any sin. And so John is addressing that. We read in verses 1 and verses 10 of last week, he said this, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have no sin, we're liars and we make God out to be a liar. So John is writing to address this error within the church and the error had profound implications. And it began to blossom in the second century, a few decades later into something called Gnosticism. And this is relevant because these ancient mistakes... God didn't come in the flesh in Christ. Therefore, the cross wasn't an atonement. Therefore, sin is not that big of a deal and it doesn't really matter what we do in the body. These ancient mistakes from 2,000 years ago affect all of us in this city today. Talked about last week that I have friends here in this community. One of them just lives a few doors up here who believes in theosophy. Theosophy comes from the word theos, And Sophia in the Greek, wisdom, they claim it to be the wisdom of God. And one of the central tenets is Christ did not come in the flesh. He did not die an atoning death on the cross. And man is not sinful. Same mistake in our town today. One block over and a couple blocks up is the Church of Christian Science meeting there today. They also deny the incarnation, deny the cross, and deny the sinfulness of man. All over the coastlands, there's seven universal Unitarianism churches. Same thing. They deny that Christ came in the flesh and was the savior of the world. They deny the cross and they deny the guilt because of sin of man. Did you know that in our nation, eight Supreme Court justices have been Unitarians? Denying the incarnation of Christ? If you go... Two blocks up Palm Avenue here and two blocks over, you'll see something called the Masonic Temple. Right? You know about this? Freemasonry. Seems innocuous on the surface. They deny the cross of Christ. They deny the atonement of Christ. They deny the guilt of man and the doctrine of sin. Right here, a few blocks away. If you look up astrology in the white and the yellow pages, excuse me, there are 33 listings for Carpinteria alone. 33 listings for Carpinteria alone. That's occultism. You know what some of them say about the incarnation, the atonement of Jesus Christ? 
that Jesus was not God in the flesh and the death he died on the sin was to atone for his own karmic debt. Hey, wait a minute. And they deny the sin guilt of humanity. Forget about going to God looking for forgiveness of sins. Jesus didn't do anything for you. Look to the stars and they'll direct you and they'll make your life good. And many of us are foolish. We read these things all the time in the newspaper. We think it's fun. It's occultism. It's satanic. It's denying the identity of Christ. It's denying the sinfulness of man and the forgiveness thereof through Christ alone. And this stuff is infiltrating, penetrating, shaping and forming our culture today. And it's ancient error. This is very relevant stuff that John is dealing with, the New Age movement, prevalent in our community, same sort of stuff. So what John is writing to us about is two things, getting Jesus right and getting Christian conduct right. The right understanding about Jesus and the right understanding about how to live in light of him. And so what we see in 1 John is the shape of discipleship, what it ought to really look like to follow Jesus. And he's correcting errors like these. Claiming to be without sin, we saw that already. Claiming to know God but disobey his commandments, that's our text today. Claiming to love God but not loving our brothers and sisters. We'll talk about that next week and throughout the book. Loving the world too much. The book focuses on what it means to really follow Jesus, the shape of discipleship. And so he tells us in verse 5, of chapter one. And this is a message we have heard from Jesus and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, us with God, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So John is saying that when Christ came in the flesh, he was a revelation of God to the world. And what he revealed to the world, among other things, is that God is light, okay? It's a metaphor for God, his nature throughout the New Testament and Old Testament. It's speaking to the idea that God is truth, God is understanding and knowledge, and God is righteousness. In God, verse 5, there is truth, knowledge, and righteousness. And so it says what we're to do is walk in that light, that we've been given through Jesus Christ to walk in truth, knowledge, and righteousness, obedience. And he calls us out. If we say that we have fellowship with him, again, chapter one, verse six, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. So this book is calling us to walk in light, to walk in who God is, in light of our relationship with Jesus Christ, righteousness, truth, and knowledge from the word of God. And it calls us out where we're not doing that. Now, here's why that's disconcerting for us. Because none of us walk all that well. None of us walk as well as maybe we ought to. None of us walk as well as we would like to. We've got some really, really bad moments. And our worst moments are perhaps our best moments. Because it causes us to think, hey, I'm actually pretty good. I got this thing together. I didn't sin for the last two and a half seconds. I'm hatting in here. But when the Bible talks about walk here, it's not talking about our best moments or our worst moments. You see, chapter one, verses eight and 10, confront our best moments. Says, if you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself and you're calling God a liar. And then, Chapter one, verse nine confronts our worst moments. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So it's not about our best moments and our worst moments. It's this thing called a walk. Parapateo in the Greek. The idea of walking is our relationship with Jesus as it plays out in our life. It's not the highs, it's not the lows, it's the tone and the tenor of our relationship with the Lord, of our life. In other words, in our lives, are we saying this, Jesus, I want to obey you. I want to follow you. I want to do what is right in your eyes. I want to be faithful to you. 
and your word and your calling upon my life and your purposes in the world. That's what it is to walk in the light. It's a tone and a tenor. There's going to be highs and there's going to be lows. But in general, are we saying, I want to walk in righteousness, truth, and knowledge? Or are we saying, I want to get away with as much as I could get away with and still be good with God? Very few of us would say it, but that is how many of us live. And what this text does is it confronts that. Again, verse 3, chapter 2. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. He had to put out the litmus test, the test, the evidence of discipleship because there were those two competing ideologies. Either Jesus came in the flesh and died on the cross and sin is a big deal, or he didn't come in the flesh, the cross was meaningless, and sin is not that big of a deal. Those were the things, or the two ideologies that were tearing apart the church. And so John says, here's how we know that we truly know Jesus. Because both sides were saying, I know Jesus. I know Jesus. This is how we know that we know. If we keep his commandments. It's a test of discipleship. Now, what helps us was sort of the, the balance, because remember there's highs and there's lows, and it's a walk, it's the tone and the tenor of our existence, is chapter 2, verse 1. that says this, My little children, I am writing to you that you may not sin. Okay, there's that side of it, right? Here's, here's, here's the book of John. He's writing to us so that we may not sin. And we say, yes, 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 I don't want to sin. And then he goes on to say, in the second part of verse 1 of chapter 2, But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the exhortation is walk in the light. Obey his commandments. Verse 6, walk as Jesus walked. I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. But when we sin, you got to know that you have an advocate with the Father. Oftentimes when we sin and we fail, and what's evident from the text is that we all will, right? Again, this is not um, trying to promote some idea of perfection or that we could get to some place where we're not going to fail until we're with Jesus. We're going to fail. But it says when we fail, we actually have an advocate. I don't know about you, but sometimes in my worst moments, I wish I could somehow escape from the presence of God. Sometimes, you know, that shame and that guilt, or maybe you're in the midst of doing it, and you just, and then sometimes, you know, the enemy would begin to condemn us and accuse us. You call yourself a Christian? You call yourself a pastor? You call yourself a father? You call yourself this? And look what you're doing? Look what you've done? And so we kind of try to cower and hide away from God in shame. But scripture says that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. An advocate is one who's for us. He's for us. He's with us. He supports us. And he pleads our cause before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the only one without sin. He's the only one who is righteous. And as our advocate, he bears the wounds before the Father and says, yes, yes, Father, Brit is bad. But I paid the fullness of his price upon the cross. He's in me by faith. And I'm in him. And he's ours. We actually have an advocate. When we sin, we have an advocate so that we don't run from God anymore. We run to him. Let us come boldly into the throne of grace where we might find mercy and help in the time of need. So that's kind of the balance of the walk. My little children, I'm writing to you that you may not sin. When you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus. Again, verse three. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. These are tough words. Verse four. The one who says, I have come to know him. I know Jesus. I'm in relationship with Jesus and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been truly perfected, meaning our love toward God made complete, functioning as it should. Again, by this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in Jesus ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now, let me tell you what John is not saying here. 
Okay, this is really important. Because if you get this wrong, you get everything wrong. If you get this wrong, you get Christianity wrong. If you get this wrong, you get life wrong. Okay, so listen. Are you listening? No, you're not. Just kidding. Okay. (laughs) Here's what John is not saying. John is not saying, if we obey his commandments, then we can know him. John is not saying, if we obey his commandments, then we can know him. Read verse 3 again. He said this, if we claim to know him, then we will obey his commandments. Polar opposites. One is drudgery under the law. The other is the good news in Jesus Christ. Here's the bad news. This 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 is what we've been saved from. If I obey God's commandments, then I might earn some favor, some merit, some standing with him, and then I can know him. Because I've been good, now I can know God. That's not the gospel. That's that's the law. That's cold, dead religion. That's what we've been saved from. The good news is that, no, we've been very bad. But Jesus through the cross has reconciled us to the Father and brought us into right standing and relationship with God. It's been bridged. But the outflow of that is, so now I'm going to obey because I do know him. You see how those are the opposite? Your faces look so blank. I'm so nervous right now. (laughs) You got to let me know if you're getting this. This is life and death stuff here. Are you getting this? Okay, what he's not saying is, if you obey God, then he will accept you, and then you can know Jesus. What he is saying is that the cross of Jesus Christ has reconciled us, brought us into relationship, and if we know him through faith, grace through faith, then that relationship will be evidenced by obedience. That's what he is saying. That's okay. You're getting it. You're getting it. Oh, never worked so hard in my life. Okay, now we've only just begun. This is going to be a long sermon because this is really important, especially at this moment in the life of our church. Okay, look at Ephesians chapter two from last week, chapter five. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Okay, so we've been brought into light. Righteousness, truth, knowledge. Walk as children of the light. Okay, notice, we walk now that we've been brought into the light. Not we walk and then we go into the light. You were formerly darkness, right? We've been saved, transferred from the kingdom of darkness, brought into the kingdom of the beloved son, Colossians 1. Now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Live out the implications of your salvation. Here's what light looks like. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. That's what's in that metaphor of light. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That's a Christian life. Again, not to please him that we might be accepted, but having been accepted... We want to please him. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So scripture, especially 1 John right now, calls us to obedience. And this is a wake-up call in our church right now, this moment. This is a wake-up call to examine our own inconsistencies, our own sin, our own hidden sin, our own places where we've opened up the door to the enemy, that we might have a day of great failure. The Christian life is trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, goodness, righteousness, and truth. So scripture is calling us to obey. You know when you're a parent and you tell your kids to do something and they ask why and you say, because I said so? Anybody ever do that? Just confess. We all do it as parents from time to time. Remember when your parents used to say that to you? Okay. I don't think it's a good thing to do, by the way, as a parent. This is not a sermon on parenting. I I do it way too frequently. I don't think it's a good thing. Okay. I I understand the part from the kid's perspective. Like, kid, don't ask me why. I brought you into this world. I could take you out of this world. (laughs) Okay. Who, who, to quote Bill Cosby, 
Who are you to ask me why? But that's, that's, not, that's a different sermon. Maybe our youth ministry is doing that sermon right now. Please, God. Oh, I don't think it's, it's good parenting when we tell them to do something and they ask why, and we say, because I said so. Because I find for myself that when I do that, it's usually for one of two reasons. One might be that I'm just lazy at the moment, right? I'm just, I'm just lazy. There's actually some good reasons why you shouldn't do that, but I don't want to stop watching this game to describe to you and unpack to you and unfold to you, little mind, all the reasons why you shouldn't do that. Just, I said so, right? It's often a function of me being a lazy parent. The second reason why I find myself sometimes saying, because I said so, is because I see in my own, in my own parenting inconsistencies, inconsistencies. One day I'm saying one thing, the next I'm saying something different. It usually has to do with my own selfishness, my own inclinations, my own desires, my own sin. So oftentimes obedience is given or a call to obedience is given without reason because we're lazy or inconsistent, perhaps unfair in what we're asking. Here's the good news. Our father in heaven is nothing like us. He calls us to obedience, but he never just says, because I said so. Though, he would certainly have the right to do that, right? But our father is never lazy, nor is he ever inconsistent or unfair. He's faithful, just, and righteous. So in his kindness, he's given us lots to think about with regards to obedience. So that we never say to somebody, obey God, and they say, why? And because you just should. God said so. There's a more robust way to talk about it. So I want to give you just a few words on obedience. Now, when a preacher says a few words, he's lying. I'll confess that now. I'm going to give you many words about (laughs) obedience. I have a few points. It's more than three. Let's see how many. Point number one. Obedience is trust. Let's go back to the garden to see this. Genesis 2. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Obedience is a matter of trust. God put man in the garden, a wonderful place, and said, Listen, everything in the garden is yours. Take care of it, enjoy it, eat from all the trees, except for this one. This one is not for you. And when the fall of man came, what it was was distrust in God. Why doesn't God want me to have this one? Well, Adam, Eve, you can eat from all the other trees, but what about the one? Surely forbidden fruit is more sweet. What about the one? And what begins to happen in the human heart is that we distrust God. Obedience is trust. Obedience in the garden would have looked like, okay, God, you didn't really give me reason. You just told me what the consequences would be. You didn't give me great reason as to why I shouldn't eat from that tree, but I can eat from all these other trees. I trust you with what you're withholding from me. I believe, God, that you're good, that you have your glory and my well-being in mind, so I'll trust you when you say that's not for me. Obedience is trust. The fall of man was distrust. What follows on the heels of that then immediately, and we deal with this every day, is choice. Obedience is a choice. Back to the garden again, Genesis 3. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave it also to her husband with her and he ate. See, she made a choice here. Obedience is a choice. She didn't trust what God said, this is not for you. And she had her reasons why it was for her. Well, it's good for food. It's a delight to the eyes and it'll make one wise. This seems good for me. This is something I want. This is something I think I need. I feel justified in this. Therefore, I'm choosing for myself what God has said he wants to withhold from me. Obedience and therefore sin is a choice. And we do this every day. God might be calling us, don't look at that. Don't consume that. Don't say that 
about that person. Don't cheat in that way. Don't take that for yourself. And we have a whole list of reasons why it makes perfect sense to us. And it's a choice in that moment. Do I trust God or do I believe that I know better with God? Better than God, excuse me. And aren't we frustrated with our kids when they don't trust us? We're like, bro, you're 13, dude. Kid, you know how many years ago I was 13? Like, I actually know something. I've been alive for 42 years. I know you think I know nothing, but I actually know something about this. And so when I'm telling you that this is not the way to go, I've been around the block. I know a little something. How much more an infinite God to our finite fallen minds? And yet we find ourselves, though we wouldn't necessarily pose it or or frame it this way, we find ourselves arguing with God and thus arguing with his character and his goodness saying, God, I hear what you're saying, but I actually think this is good for me. This sexual fulfillment, taking this for myself, consuming this, I, I think this is what is good for me. Sin is an issue of trust. Sin is an issue of choice. Uh, and here's good news about choice. 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, let me paraphrase. We all get tempted with the same junk. Okay, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. I know sometimes it feels like nobody knows my pain. Nobody knows the weight I'm under. Nobody knows this temptation, this burning. Nobody understands. The Bible comes along and says, bro, everybody deals with the same junk. No temptation is overtaking you, but such is common to man. So that's good. We're all in it together. We're all in it together. We got good news. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able. That's good news. God in his kindness has actually put parameters on temptation. That's really good news. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able to bear. That's wonderful news. But then again, it's also bad news because it's taken away from us the old excuse, the devil made me do it. Or I just couldn't possibly say no. Or I couldn't resist. Or I couldn't help myself. Scripture says, well, actually, God is faithful and he was already helping, helping you. Never let you be tempted beyond that which you're able to bear. And then look at this good news. But with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. There's always a way to say no. There's always a way to flee. There's always a way to abstain. There's always a way to escape. Always. God sees too. Obedience is an issue of trust. Therefore, obedience involves choice, but there's some really good news about choice for the Christian. Number three, obedience is God's will for you. Seems like it's a no-brainer, but look at Titus chapter two. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our glory, of the glory, excuse me, of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." Obedience is God's will for us. He actually redeemed us that we might live righteously, right? We're not saved by good works. Somebody say, that's right. But we are saved for good works. Somebody say, oh, wow, right? We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself, for himself, with people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. First Thessalonians says it this way. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, he's saying you guys have been doing good in obedience, that you excel still more. You can do better in obedience, he's saying. And I hope you know, side note, look at me, don't look at the screen. I hope you know as I'm preaching these things, I'm preaching to myself. I'm preaching to myself. God is calling me to the carpet on obedience, okay? So I hope it doesn't sound like I'm standing up here pointing the finger. 
Okay? If I point at you, there's three pointing back at me. Okay. <laughs> took you a little while. Okay, second sentence. For you know what the commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus were. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Wait a minute. Look how, just in some instances, how that will simplify life. God, what's your will in this situation? What do you want me to do? What's the way to go? Here's an overarching explanation of God's will. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles, non-Christians in our context, who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. We've been called by God through Christ into the marvelous light, transferred from the domain of darkness, brought into the kingdom of the beloved son. And it's not so that we could live in pure lives, but for sanctification. Next point, point number four. Obedience is not burdensome. This is good news. Look what 1 John 5 says. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. This is what it looks like to love God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Now, we got to confess that we struggle with that. Because a lot of times, to obey, to me, feels like a bummer. I'll just be honest. There's stuff I continue doing even though I know it's disobedience because to obey feels like a bummer. It feels burdensome. And I just got to call that what that is. That's a lie from Satan. That's a lie of the enemy. That's deception. The commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. You know what's burdensome? The weight of sin and the results of sin and the consequences of sin and living in secret, and we reaping what we sow, and affecting our families, and our marriages, and our churches, and our community. The consequences of sin is burdensome. The commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. Man, there's such a release when we finally choose to obey. There's some issues in my life I surrendered to the Lord and brought into obedience to him this week. And it was like, it felt like a bummer for me to do it, but I knew he was calling me to do it. Now that I've done it, it's like there's a release. Like the burden is gone. I'm obeying, but it's not burdensome. It's light. Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and light. Man, obedience is weighty, is not weighty. Rebellion, disobedience is weighty. Obedience is not burdensome. Number five, how far will we go? Nobody knows. <laughs> Once you get past five, you're crossing a crazy threshold. Past five points, you're in like the unknown realm. Point number five, and we know this. This is important though. Remember, we're talking about why should we obey God? a robust explanation. Obedience has results, as does disobedience. Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, our sinful nature, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we don't grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. You know, we have a hard time believing this for this reason. Because God is so kind and because of the nature of grace, God does not deal out to us one-for-one retribution. In other words, we don't sin and then receive the just consequences of that immediately. Isn't, Isn't that kind of God? And even when our sin has been dealt with upon the cross, there's still consequences to sin. It's interesting in the garden that when Eve reached for the fruit, God did not immediately strike her with lightning. 
There's not one-for-one retribution in the economy of God, though sometimes there is, but he tries to draw us to repentance with kindness, the book of Romans says. Draws us with cords of loving kindness. And so because it would appear as though we get away with a lot of stuff, we sometimes honestly don't think we'll reap what we sow. But the scriptures say, don't be deceived by that. God is not mocked. We will reap what we sow. If we sow disobedience to the flesh, there's going to come a time when we reap that. That's just, that's evident right now. There's going to come a time. Our sin will catch up with us. God will see to it because he loves us. And whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And discipline seems unpleasant at the time. But afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So God will see to it that there's some consequences in our life. And then obedience has positive consequences. Point number six. The Christian obeys God because he or she is loved by God. Look at this passage. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, here's the important part for this point. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for us and an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. But immorality and any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. How convicting for me. But the salient point is this. Be imitators of God, righteousness, truth, knowledge, goodness, as beloved children and walk in love. It doesn't say... It does not say, imitate God so that you can be loved by him. It's not what it says. That's not the gospel. That's the lie of religion. That's the weight of the law. It says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Just as Christ also loved you, because we are the beloved of God, we want to obey. We just love God. We're already loved by him. We don't have to obey to be loved. How many times do we fall into that trap that if I do better, God will love me more? It's just not in the Bible. It's just not there. God's love for you is perfect. You can't improve upon it. You can't take away from it. It's not dependent upon you doing good or your failure to do good. It's dependent upon his righteousness and character and who he is. That's wonderful news. So we're freed from, okay, I got to obey so God will love me to this. God loves me. Christ demonstrated his love for me on the cross. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. I'm the beloved daughter, the beloved son of God. Therefore, I want to obey him. The Christian obeys because he or she is loved by God. Point seven, the Christian obeys because he or she has new life. This is real. Listen to me. Salvation is not some mere legal transaction by where we're just justified by God. In salvation, we actually have new life. Can I get an amen? Amen. We actually have new life. Romans, we've been here a bit lately. Before this, Paul says, well, if where sin abounds, grace abounds, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this that our old self was crucified with him. Someone say, yes. In order that our body of sin might be done away with. Someone say, yes. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Everybody say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We have new life. We truly have new life. We obey because we have new life. 
We don't have to earn new life. We have it by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this new life, our text is saying, is evidenced by new behavior. No endeavor to walk in obedience. There must not be new life, is what he's saying. Again, it's not, it's not the highs and it's not the lows. I'm writing to you that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate. It's tone in the tenor of our lives. No desire to walk in righteousness, truth, and knowledge. There must not be new life. But where there's new life, there's a desire to obey. Next point. The Christian obeys because he or she has a new identity. This is connected to our new life. Look at this passage. For when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, right? That trying to earn our way before God, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons and daughters, this is gender exclusive language in the old, in the new American standard. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son and a daughter. We're not slaves. We're not slaves who are guilty before God. We're not slaves to sin. We're not slaves to the law. We have become sons and daughters. He's put his spirit in us, and his spirit is in us, urging us to say, Abba, Father, urging us to relate to God as Daddy. That's what Abba is in Aramaic. Daddy, beloved Father. We have this new identity where once we were transgressors transgressors and enemies of God, we are now sons and daughters of God who have new life in the new kingdom and are loved by the Father. And, And what our text is saying is that truth must make us desire strongly to obey or that truth is not in us, then we don't have new identity. We don't have new life. We haven't put our faith in Christ. Point number eight. Ooh, it's getting scary. Point number eight. The Christian obeys because he... Oh, nine. Thank you. Not even I can keep track. The Christian obeys because he or she has a new nature. This is in line with new life and new identity very shortly. 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. This is either true or it isn't. Again, salvation is not a mere legal transaction. We either have new life, new identity, and we're new creations filled with the Holy Spirit in Christ, Christ in us, or we don't. And if we do, there's a desire to obey. Point 10. If we go past this, we're... We're in the death zone. The Christian obeys because he or she has a new allegiance. A new allegiance. 1 Corinthians 6. Flee immorality. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Here's a salient point. And that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. You're not your own. We don't get to do what we want to do just because we want to do it. We've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We, we belong to him. Therefore, wonderfully, by the glory of the gospel, we're obligated to think this way. What does Christ want me to do? What does Christ have for my life? What would he have me do in this situation? What would he have me do with my unforgiveness, with my bitterness, with my sexual immorality, with my finances? What what would God have me do? Because my life is his. I've been bought with a price. We've got to come to grips with that. We don't get to do what we want to do. Number 11. The Christian obeys God because he or she loves Jesus. We're loved and we love. Jesus said very simply, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If then statement from Jesus. If you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. John is saying the same thing. If we say that we know him, that we abide in him, that we love him, 
then we're going to keep his commandments. Again, it's not perfect obedience. We're already told we're going to sin. It's not the highs and the lows, but it is the tone and the tenor of our life that's pursuing wholeheartedly after righteousness. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Therefore, we can't just do what the opponents that John was writing to or about wanted to do. Live however they wanted to live and say, oh, but I love the Lord. Jesus said, that's, that's not what it looks like. You're beloved. You have new life. You have new identity. You're a new creation. Love has reciprocity. If you love me, you obey me. And, uh, you know, we'll just be honest. It, it, it sometimes can seem to us hard to love the Lord. We can't see him. He seems intangible. We struggle loving people that we see, but I just got to say, Jesus is worth loving. He's the most lovable being in all the universe. So sometimes we've got to train our hearts to get into the word, to get on our faces. If you're having a hard time obeying from a place of loving the Lord, more time in the word of God more time fellowshipping with brothers and sisters who are pursuing, more time on your face, pressing in. Confess it. Lord, I love you, but I want to love you more. Holy Spirit, reveal Christ to me in such a way that I would be enamored with him, captivated, charmed, and entranced with who he is. Holy Spirit will do that. It's God's will that you'd see Jesus in such a way that you love him intensely. Point number 12, the Christian obeys because he or she is a witness of Jesus in the world. This is incredibly important. Our obedience has to do with our witness. We're getting this. You are a chosen race, speaking to the Christian, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you so that we can witness for Christ. Out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our obedience profoundly affects our witness. It's gonna be tough for our church for a while. And it's tough for those who know us best. Those who see our inconsistencies most clearly that aren't Jesus followers. You know, what they think about Christianity and salvation and Christ and eternity are largely affected by our obedience. I hate that. I wish it weren't so, but it is. There's more at stake in my obedience than what I want to do. And the greatest thing at stake is God's glory. Maybe the final point, maybe not. (laughs) Verse number 13. The Christian obeys for the glory of God. For the glory of God. It's not about us, for God's glory. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We will live for so many things in our lives. There's nothing better to live for than the glory of God. If we live for the glory of God in the big picture of what we do and in the minutia of our obedience choices, We will never regret that at the end. When we stand before him, the righteous judge who loves us, we will never regret having made decisions for his glory. We will never regret spending ourselves on his glory, forsaking sin for his glory. We will never, ever regret that. And thankfully, we have great help. The final point, point 14. The Christian obeys by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's such good news. Obedience can be tough. And we've not been left to ourselves to just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just cowboy up and get her done. No. Galatians 5 says, I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So maybe you need to pray today for a fresh filling of the Spirit to love Christ, want to obey Christ, and then to walk in that. But whatever it is, I think that this season in our church is a wake-up call to deal with our hearts, to watch over them, to allow the Holy Spirit to search them, to see our places of disobedience and inconsistency, our hidden sins and our dangerous areas, and to get right. Man, we would really squander this season in our church 
if we didn't all get right. And only you know. And God knows. And he loves you so much. He's calling us all to repentance. And repentance is such a good thing. Peter got it right when he said to Israel, repent therefore, that times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of the Lord. Repentance is not a bad word. It's a beautiful word. God has so much for us. Let's seek to obey him. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your instruction. I just pray the Holy Spirit, you'd help us with these things. Reveal to us our sin. Draw us into righteousness. Minister the love of the Father. Please, Lord, don't let the enemy come and condemn us. Don't let us beat up ourselves. But just draw us into a deeper place with Christ. Reveal him in such a way that it would be the joy of our lives to live for his glory. And fill us with your Holy Spirit to do that.